0: And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, the very beginning of this passage invites us to behold your servant, and uh, that is our prayer. Uh, We think of how in the New Testament, a group of people come and say, we would see Jesus, and Lord, we would see Jesus. Would you please help us to see him more clearly, and enable us more and more to be like Jesus? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So... The hope for the world is found in the church. I don't know if you remember, but that was how our series began way back in September, saying that the hope for the world is found in the church. That's how Isaiah begins. God in chapter 2 gives us his vision for what his people can be. You might remember this. This picture of this city kind of elevated on a mountain that is so beautiful, so filled with the greatness of God that the world around takes note and wants to know more and comes and learns about God and is healed. And In that vision, God is saying the hope for this world is found in his people, his church. But what Isaiah I think intends for us to feel keenly is the question of how. Because when we actually look at the people of God and Isaiah gives us a very clear and honest depiction of the people of God, we see something that makes it seem impossible that any hope could be found in them. It, the, the story of Isaiah has been a story of God working with a people that seems to have no hope of change. You might remember how it, early on it began with God calling his people to trust in him and them choosing to be idolatrous. Of God warning his people through Isaiah to repent, but them choosing not to listen. Of God bringing his people through the lowness of being humbled through first Assyria and then Babylon, and yet God's people not learning to trust. And then finally, in these final chapters that we've been looking at, we see God saying, trust me, I am still for you. Even though you are broken, I love you. And yet it seems again and again that God's people are rebellious, refusing to hear. And, And so what it seems like we have is this kind of classic cliche of an immovable wall in terms of the unchangeability of God's people being met by an unstoppable force that is God's commitment to make his people the way that the world is changed. And so the question is how can this be resolved? And the answer that God has for us in Isaiah is that the way this will take place is through his servant. Beginning in chapter 42, and then in a few other places throughout Isaiah, we have what has been identified by many commentators as, as the servant songs. And they're speaking of how there's these different poems that just seem to kind of just step into the middle of God's promises that depict this person that is described as the servant. Uh, This person we know is someone who comes in the future. If you noticed at the very end of our passage, he talks about the former things have come to play and new things I now declare. He's saying, I am telling you something ahead of time. This servant is coming in the future. The servant we see is the key to God connecting to his people. Verse six says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. This servant is going to be the way that God connects to his people and changes them. And also, his, this servant is going to be the way that the world is changed. I have given you to open the eyes that are blind, says verse 7, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. God is sending this servant, this person who will serve him faithfully to bring about the solution, to bring about the salvation that he has promised. And, and it's this set of songs describing God's appointed servant that we're going to be considering throughout this season of Lent. And and the reason it is so appropriate for this time as we're moving towards Easter is that these mysterious servant songs are very clearly telling us about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself clearly recognizes that these songs are being sung about him. We we see that at the very beginning of his ministry, when he is baptized, and God, after he comes out of the water, declares, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Most commentators say God is quoting himself in Isaiah 42, where it speaks about the servant with whom I am well pleased. But then, even more specifically, when Jesus begins his ministry, maybe you remember this scene from Luke, he opens the scroll, and it says, The scroll of Isaiah. And he quotes from one of the servant songs. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then as he finishes reading this servant song, he says, Today in your presence, this prophecy is fulfilled. He's saying, I am the servant. Or if you go to the very end of the Gospel of Luke after Jesus has risen from the dead and the disciples are still clearly bewildered, Jesus said, Did you not understand from the Scriptures that before the Christ received His glory, He must first be rejected and suffer? And the place that He is referring to where the Scriptures say before glory comes rejection and suffering is the servant songs. What's clear is that as Jesus grew, as Jesus studied the Scriptures as a young man, He came to understand that these servant songs were speaking of him. And so this season, as we are looking at these servant songs, my desire for us is twofold. First and foremost, to allow these songs to give us a window onto Jesus, to give us a different way of looking at Jesus and understanding who he is and what he came to do. There is Nothing more worth our time than simply gazing upon our Savior. But then secondly, as we are looking at these songs and as we are studying them, because he is our leader, he is the one we are meant to follow, these songs also tell us something about us, about our calling. And so it's those two focal points, looking at who Jesus is and also looking at what it means to follow him, that we will be considering together over these next weeks. So for this morning, as we're looking at the very first one, and we'll be especially focusing on just those opening four verses, what I want us to see is really three things. We see the mission of the servant. We see the manner of the servant, the way he does things. And we see the means of the servant, that is how he accomplishes, the, the mission, the manner, and the means. First, As God describes this servant, what is his mission? What does God send him to do? The good news is this is one of those places where we don't have to guess. It's absolutely clear. In fact, it's so clear that Isaiah, or specifically God through Isaiah, repeats this multiple times. When he speaks about his servant, notice what it says I have put my spirit upon him, verse one, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And if we miss it, the end of verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. The mission of the servant, the mission of Jesus when he came into this world is to establish justice. And it says he will not rest until it has happened. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think sometimes Christians can have a more narrow view of what Jesus came to do, that they think of in terms of Jesus primarily just coming to, to save souls and to bring us to heaven, but, but we hear something bigger here, right? Jesus came to establish justice. He, he came to correct the, the evils of, of racism and sexism. He came for the poor, the ostracized, the outsiders to bring them in. He came not just to make us right with God, but to make the entire world right. His mission is a mission to bring forth justice. Now, even as we say that, we should recognize that that the Bible means something slightly different by that word than the world means when it speaks of justice. Honestly, when we as a world speak of justice, I think we speak without a whole lot of clarity about what we even mean. Everyone knows that justice somehow exists. I mean, when you're three years old and your parents are cutting up the pie and yours is a little bit smaller than your siblings and you say, that's not fair, you already show that you have a sense of justice, right? That there is a way of fairness where everything should fit together rightly. And all of us kind of innately have that sense that things should be fair. The problem is we don't even know exactly what we mean when we say something should be fair. Or even if we feel like we do, we clearly can't agree with everyone else because it seems like everyone has their own sense of what fairness is. I mean, think about how many differences that we have within our nation. What is fair and just when it comes to immigration? What is fair and just when it comes to reparations related to racism? What is fair and just when it comes to caring for the unborn? Everyone has this kind of sense that there should be a way that it all fits together. There should be a way that it's fair, but we don't even really deeply know what it means. We just have this kind of abstract sense of of fairness. Now, when we come to the scriptures, and when the scriptures speak of justice, we should recognize that it has a decidedly much more personal way of viewing what justice is. So the word that's repeated here a few different times is the word mishpat, which in Hebrew simply just means judgments, decisions. And in this context, it's specifically God's decisions about the way things should be. In other words, when the Bible speaks of justice, it's saying that there is a way that God has designed the world to be, and justice is when the world is functioning according to God's design. So, so one commentator put it this way, a commentator on Isaiah. He says... The divine mishpat that the servant will establish, by it we're not merely speaking of a private forgiveness of sins or of the imposition of a humanly designed system for redistribution of goods, this abstract sense of of sharing. Justice here is that life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of its Lord. Let me say that again. Justice is that life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of its Lord. In other words, justice is about design. It's about the world working the way it was supposed to be. And I think we actually kind of understand that because when we're saying that's not fair, there's something deep within us that's saying this isn't how it's supposed to be. I'm reminded of a movie probably few of us have seen. is from the 90s called Grand Canyon. And there's this one scene where you have this man who's driving a car and he's in a uh, kind of an unsafe neighborhood and his car suddenly breaks down and he calls for a tow, but he's nervous because he sees these gang members, one who seems to be carrying a gun, coming to his car and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. And then this tow truck driver finally arrives, comes out, and starts speaking to the gang and trying to dissuade them from what they're going to do. And and here's what he says is, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And the Bible says that's right. This world is not the way it is supposed to be. That is what we mean when we say it's unjust. It doesn't fit together because it is not fitting in harmony with God's design. I think in terms of that idea of harmony, um, if you have been at a birthday party where you don't have someone who starts the song. So, like, the, the cake is there, the candles are there, and everyone knows they're supposed to sing, you know, happy birthday. But if you don't ask someone ahead of time to start it, do you, you know what happens, right? Like, it seems like there's, like, 17 different pitches all happening at once, and it sounds horrific. And, and it's even worse if, say, you have, like, a couple of boys in your family who decide they're going to sing a totally different song, like We Wish You a Merry Christmas or something like that. It makes things even more kind of cacophonous and disordered. But then at some point, sometimes at least, there might be one person whose voice is strong enough that everyone else kind of subtly picks up on it and their voices start coming together. And so by the time you get to the final happy birthday to you, everyone is singing in unison and it sounds kind of good. So here's, here's a way of thinking about it when we're talking about justice, that there is a sense that God, the creator, sings a song of justice in the world, a song of the beauty of the vulnerable and the poor being empowered and given dignity by those who have much. A song of joy as as people of all differences are included and brought together. A song of delight as people speak with honesty and integrity and people can trust each other. A song filled with this idea of the whole world being united in worship of God. That is his song of his design for this world. His song of justice. And the world experiences justice as it is brought into tune with that song, as in different areas and different spheres of life, different people and different communities learn to somehow sing in harmony with God's song of justice. And I want to say that is when the servant says the servant came to bring forth justice in the world as a sense that the servant came to teach us how to sing. The servant came to teach the world what the design for the world is, what God's song of justice is, that we might be in harmony with God. It's important to recognize it because that means when we're thinking about Jesus in our life, that is the work that Jesus is seeking to do in you and in me. His bringing you to himself through faith and you experience forgiveness is really only the beginning. He is throughout your life seeking to teach you how to hear the joyful song of God's design and to learn to sing in harmony with Him, to learn how to walk justly in all that you do, to walk justly in your workplace, in the way that you conduct yourselves with others. If you're in school, to walk justly amongst your classmates, noticing the people who are on the outside and bringing them in. To to walk justly with how you use your resources, thinking about the privilege that we have been given and seeking to use it to honor God and care for others. That is the work that Jesus is doing in you, and he will not rest until you are complete. But what that also means is if it says that he will not rest until the world brings forth justice, that means we have a mission in this. Because Jesus continues to work, and the way that he works is through his church. Our mission, in a sense, is to be the place through whom Jesus brings justice to the world. Which means, yes, it begins with us deeply longing to see people brought into fellowship with God, trusting in Christ so that their lives are in harmony with God. But it doesn't end there. It means us caring when we see people who are ostracized, when we see people who are poor being taken advantage of, when we see the effects of racism and the effects of sexism. It means us being passionate to see that change because we want to see the world brought in harmony with God. And as the world is brought in harmony with God, we are brought in harmony with each other. that's, That's the mission that Jesus was given. He was sent into this world to bring forth justice. Now secondly, even as we see that repeated in these opening verses, it's really important for us also to notice not just his mission, but the manner in which he does this. It's interesting to me that in some ways right after, it's you know, like God says, this is his mission, it seems like he needs to clarify, but let me tell you how before he goes on and repeats it. Let me tell you how he is going to accomplish this. And I think the reason he wants to correct it is because people's understanding of how something like this might take place is probably wrong. Because in that day, and maybe even in our day, when we think of the people who will get stuff done, who will make the changes happen, we think of people who exert their power. In that day, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar who gets stuff done with the Babylonian army, or later on, Cyrus, who's able to conquer Babylon with the Medes and the Persian army. People were powerful and got stuff done. But do you notice... That's not how the servant is going to bring forth justice. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. It's a picture of gentleness. I think of sometimes if I've like been teaching a class and the class is large and things are starting to get crazy, the temptation at times is for me to just kind of yell because if I yell then people will finally be quiet. That's not what we see the servant doing, right? The servant, it says he will not raise his voice. He will not force it to be heard. He will seek to bring about justice with, with gentleness. You know, gentleness is a word that's often misunderstood because I think we sometimes associate it with weakness, but it's actually in some ways the opposite. If someone is weak, they cannot be gentle. They're just weak. Gentleness is when someone has power, And could use the power, but instead he restrains himself or she restrains herself out of kindness for the person they're dealing with. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have been accompanied by a vast army of angels wherever he went, blowing (laughs) trumpets, demanding that people listen to him and people would have listened. He could have made sure there are earthquakes, that there is thunderstorm wherever he spoke, and people would have listened. But that is not the power that he uses. He does not raise his voice. He does not force it to be heard. He speaks and allows the people simply to choose to listen. In fact, Matthew 12 uh, tells us that, that when he does these miracles and heals people, he actually tells them... Don't tell people that I've healed you. And it seems like the implication is he doesn't want the the hype machine of all the things that he's done to suddenly cause people to feel like they need to hear him. He just wants to be heard for the the merits of what he's saying. And Matthew actually explains that when Jesus does this, this is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 42, where it speaks of he will not cause his voice to be heard. We see this, this gentleness, not just in terms of forcing his voice to be heard, but in terms of especially caring for the weak, for those who are brought low through sin. Do you see that in verse 3? A bruised reed he will not break. We can imagine him kind of walking through these plants, and there's this stem that's bent, and all it would take is just like a little bit of almost a blow of wind, and it will snap. But instead, Jesus very carefully straightens it. Or it speaks also of how a faintly burning wick he will not there is this candle where it's like it's smoking and the fire is almost out. And if you just blow on it, it will probably go up. Instead, Jesus kind of puts his hand over it and allows it to kind of strengthen. But again, this gentleness isn't the same as weakness. Because notice that even as he deals very carefully with, with these, these weak and, 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 and brought low, he also does it with strength. He himself is not going to be brought low. It says he will not grow faint or be discouraged. There is a gentleness that's coupled with a resilience, right? I think of how, as a parent, sometimes I just get things terribly wrong. Maybe you can't relate, but that certainly is true for me. And that there are moments where one of my kids has done something that's obviously a mistake. And they know that it's obviously a mistake. And, and what do I do in that moment? Boy, look at that mistake that you've just made. I hope you've learned your lesson and start talking about all the ways you did it wrong. This is not helpful in that moment, right? All I'm doing is I'm just kind of crushing. But, but the gentleness that we have here with Jesus is different, and yet it's a gentle resilience. It's an unfailing, it's a persistence, Which speaks of a kind of strength that is unusual because normally when you and I face conflict, when we face resistance, we have you know two classic responses. There's the fight, I'm going to use all of my power to stop it, or there's a flight, I'm giving up, I'm running away. But Jesus does neither, right? He he works with gentleness, knowing how to speak in a way that's appropriate for the person, and yet he doesn't give up. There is a persistence, he will keep going. And if we think about how we see Jesus in the Gospels, don't we see that again and again? Think of, think of his dealings with the tax collectors, like how he calls Matthew the tax collector, or Zacchaeus. These are people who knew they had made some bad life choices. They knew that they were corrupt. They knew they were outcasts of society. And so, what does Jesus do? He says, "Let's have dinner." With gentleness or think of his apostles. I mean, two years of getting things wrong seems to be their story. Again and again, they seem to keep on getting things wrong with Jesus, and Jesus does say, okay, I'm done. No, he, he keeps instructing. He keeps teaching. He keeps loving in a way that's, that's moving them forward. And yet, you never see him being content to just say, okay, well, you're good enough. There is a persistence, right? Is there any better picture of this resilient gentleness than the cross. Rather than overpowering us with his judgment or just giving up on people because of their sinfulness, he gently, strongly, willingly lays down his life because that's what the bruised reed and the smoldering wick needs to be brought back to life. The servant, as he brings forth justice, he does it through this resilient gentleness. And isn't that something that your heart and my heart needs to hear? Jesus has an agenda for you. We've already said that. He wants to make you whole, and he will not rest until you are. And yet he will do it in a way where he knows your weakness He will not overpower you or overwhelm you. He he knows the failingness of your faith and he will speak and work in a timing that is just right for you so that he will not destroy you and he will never, ever give up on us because he is resiliently gentle. And as we consider how he loves us, that also should remind us of what our calling is as we seek to fulfill the mission that he has given us. When the the church starts thinking that it is its its job to kind of manipulate, to push people into the kingdom of God, today you must decide, if not, you have never a chance again. When we feel to pressure people, we have lost our way because that's not the way of resilient gentleness. When the church becomes so concerned to confront error and to correct sin that it has no further compassion for people's weakness and, and, and lack of willpower, when it does not have patience with the slowness of repentance, we have lost our way because it's not the way of resilient gentleness. When after a period of time, we've just decided that we're giving up on people We've lost our way because Jesus is resiliently gentle, and that is our calling as those who follow the servant. So the mission to bring forth justice, we see the manner that is a way of resilient gentleness. And one more thing that we should notice about the servant, and that is the means. Because the question that perhaps might be occurring to us, or maybe not, is how How does Jesus do this? We've already said that this takes a tremendous amount of strength to be able to keep staying in there as you're facing failure after failure and neither over-respond through pressure or give up to just keep at it. How does he do that? That might seem like a strange question because maybe you go, well, it's Jesus. He's powerful. But that's actually to misunderstand Jesus because Jesus is someone who became a man like us when he took on flesh. He opened up himself to temptation. He took on weakness so that he could be tempted to be discouraged. He could experience loneliness. And and if you think that the reason that the servant is able to be like that is just because he has this tremendous amount of internal willpower, you actually misunderstand Jesus. Because here we say that the mean, see that the means that the servant had, the way that he was able to keep going, was not through just this internal force of will, but through his external dependence upon God. One of the most beautiful parts of these opening verses is the relationship between God and the servants. Behold my servants whom I uphold. Literally, whom I take tightly by the hand. That's the idea of upholding. And, and verse six makes it even clearer. When God says to the servant, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I mean, I think, of what, when do we see someone take someone by the hand? It's you know, like a parent and a child, right? You know, if, if a four-year-old is suddenly in this unfamiliar setting, suddenly the four-year-old will grab his mom's or his dad's hand. Why, does, why do they do that? It's not because somehow holding their hand will make them safer. It's that they need to know that their parent is right there because if their parent is right there, they know they're going to be okay. And and God says, I'm going to hold you by your hand. I will be with you and you will know that I'm with you. And what's more, notice he says that I have put my spirit upon him. God is saying, I have entrusted my power, the power of my spirit upon this servant, which is interesting because what that's telling you is that that Jesus did not have enough on his own to fulfill the task that God had given him. God gave his spirit, the power of his spirit. Jesus depended on the power of the spirit to be able to fulfill the task. He is depending on God's strength. And what's more, do you notice also the love? This is my chosen in whom my soul delights. As we said in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus hears that, that very thing. You are my son, with whom I am well pleased. He he knows that the Father smiles when looking upon him. This is how Jesus was able to stay so resiliently Gentle in the face of opposition, because he knows that he is loved by the Father. And he knows that the Father holds him by his hand and he knows that the Father will give him the strength that he needs. He says this again and again in the Gospels. I only do what the Father enables me to do. The Father loves me and I love the Father. His strength was not just because he had the strong will. His strength was because God was strong and because he is someone who entrusted himself to his Father, who prayed to his Father, who waited on his Father. What's true in Isaiah 40 for us is true for him as well. Even youths grow weary. They stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. That is the story of Jesus. He waited on his father knowing that he was loved. And in that, he found strength. And I think that's Really important for you and me to understand so that we can understand the life that you and I are called to. We are not called to have this tremendous force of will that will drive us to faithfulness. If that is not what Jesus was called to, that is certainly not what we are called to. You and I are called to something different, and it's something that Jesus himself has made possible for us. Because, and we we will be talking about this more in the coming weeks, all that is true of the servant in terms of his relationship with God through the servant is now true of us. So you need to understand that God says the very same thing to you and to me. I will hold you by your right hand and you will know that I will never leave you. Even as... The servant was entrusted with the spirit. God has given his spirit to us saying, you don't need to do this on your own. I will give you my strength and my power to fulfill this mission. And just as God said of Jesus, believe this or not, it's true. He says this of you if you are in Christ. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And if in Christ we can hear this, this is the means by which we can fulfill the mission that we have through Christ. As we know God's love for us, as we depend upon him, we can begin to be people with gentle resilience who seek to bring about justice in the world so that through the people of God, through the beautiful church that God is making us, the world can be changed. That is what we learn from the servant in these opening verses.